everyday injustice. Too many wrongful convictions, corruption has infected the criminal justice system. Leaving too many people helpless, fighting for their lives instead of receiving justice, people suffer. Is that why they say justice is blind? Hello and welcome to the Everyday Injustice Podcast. I'm your host, David Greenwald. For the past 10 years, we've operated Vanguard Court Watches in California, including San Francisco, Sacramento, and Yolo counties. Our goal? Expose everyday court injustices, and now, more broadly, shine a spotlight on injustices in the entire criminal justice system in the form of wrongful convictions, police and prosecutorial misconduct, and mass incarceration. This podcast hopes to take it a step further and highlight criminal justice reform on a national level. Everyday injustice. This is the case of Dusty Turner, and we have on our show today Lisa Spees. Welcome to the show, Lisa. Thanks for having me. Can you give us some background on the Dusty Turner case and what he's facing right now? Uh, So Dusty was convicted of abduction with the intent to defile and murder in 1996. He has run through most of his appeals, all of his appeals at this point. And we currently have a petition for clemency pending with Governor Northam's office. Can you tell us the incident that led to his case and conviction? Uh, Sure. Dusty um, was out in Virginia Beach. Uh, June of 1995, he was out with his slim buddy. Dusty and Billy Joe Brown were Navy SEAL trainees at the time. They had gotten through the majority of their training, and they were only weeks away from receiving their tridents. They were actually eligible to be deployed at the time that the crime occurred. They were out uh, at a club called the Bayou in Virginia Beach, and Billy Brown was very drunk. He was... uh, he says during during later testimony that his goal that night was to get as drunk as possible. Uh, Dusty wasn't drinking heavily, um, and he met a girl named Jennifer Evans, uh, who was a tourist. She was um, she met her college roommate and was spending a, a few days in Virginia Beach for vacation with her college roommate and her family. And so this was her first night into town. Um, so they met at the club that night and they were hanging out most of the night, uh, you know, talking and, and, you know, as 19, 20 year olds do, um, at some point in time, Jennifer was there with two friends and the two friends wanted to leave and Jennifer wanted to stay there with Dusty until the club closed. So she talked her friends into, uh, I guess, I, I don't know that she talked them into, they agreed that the friends would go ahead and go get a cup of coffee somewhere. And then they would come back and they would pick her up at two o'clock and Jennifer would hang out there. Uh, I think it was about an hour uh, from when her friends left until they were supposed to come back and pick her up. So at that point in time, Dusty and Jennifer decide that they want to find Billy Brown a ride home or Dusty does so that he and Jennifer can go down to the beach and take a walk on the beach. And so Dusty goes and asks a few people and finds um, a former girlfriend of Billy Brown's, Kristen Bishop, who agreed to give Billy Brown a ride home that night. And after they secure this ride for him, they realize there's not enough time 
to walk down to the beach. It would have been about a mile from the club to the beach. So there wasn't enough time to go down there and walk and then come back before her friends were going to be there. So they hang out in the lobby of the hotel. A club was inside of a hotel, just kind of the layout. So they hang out in the lobby of the hotel for a few minutes, and then they decide to go out and sit in his car and listen to a CD and talk. Um, They had been in the car a couple minutes when Dusty sees Billy Brown coming out to the car. And um, uh, Dusty kind of preps her a little bit and says, you know, just kind of ignore him. He's drunk and he's probably going to be crude. And uh, um, Jennifer lets Billy Brown in and he gets into the back seat of the car. And uh, Billy says a couple of things to her and she ignores him. And then um, I think he, I think he asked maybe is she a virgin and she didn't respond. And then he ran his hand through her hair. And when, uh, when he did that, she reached around and she slapped his hand away. And at that point in time, he attacked her and, and, wrapped his arms around her neck and uh both dusty and billy say i'm sorry both dusty and billy say that she died you know pretty much instantaneously her arms never left her side there was no um signs of any struggle no marks on either of them that she was trying to get away no no damage to the vehicle you know of, of any kicking or struggling or anything like that um and and she passed away in the car at that point in time, uh, Billy starts screaming to Dusty to drive, and Dusty does. Uh, they drive out of the parking lot, and, uh, and they drive to uh, Newport News Park, is the way it's described, and, and they left her body in the woods. And Dusty didn't tell what happened for eight days after that. But Billy ultimately admitted to killing Jennifer alone? Well, not 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 right away um they were questioned i think twice and uh billy denied you know having anything to do with anything and um once dusty had told police what happened um dusty drew them a map of where her remains were and when the police came in to talk to billy after that he could tell from the map that dusty had drawn that map and he was angry and so at that point in time, he gives four stories in about a 24-hour period. And the first story is that they killed her together. And I think he quickly realized, well, wait, I just implicated myself in, in a murder here. Um, and so then he changes the story and says that Jennifer is dead when, she gets, when he gets to the car. And so there's, there's four stories total in about a 24-hour period. And Billy was trying to say that Dusty did it. Um, from the second version on. And so at the time of each of their trials, they were tried separately. At the time of the trial, um, Brown was saying that that Dusty did it. Um, It wasn't until a few years later, I think as early as 1999, um, Billy had what he calls a religious conversion in prison. And um, he begins taking responsibility for what he did and telling uh, members of his Bible study. He wrote a letter to his mother. His mother told him that he needed to write a letter to his aunt. Uh, And also he wrote a letter to his lawyer, uh, clear back in 1999, that he committed this crime alone. Um, A few years later, someone that knew Billy Brown at that facility got transferred to the facility that Dusty was at. 
and the guy comes up to Dusty and starts talking to him and, and ends up telling him that, hey, you know, Billy Brown's now saying that he did it. And from that point on, that kind of opened up possibilities for Dusty at that time. Uh, uh, you know, to, to go back into court, he had a, he had a recanting, you know, witness kind of thing. What so, was Dusty claiming initially happened? Well, when the police initially came to him, um, he denied knowing anything that happened. When he spoke to them the second time, they um, they talked to him about what the Evans family was going through, and that you know they should know where their daughter was or, or what happened. And Billy, or I'm sorry, Dusty could not get that out of his head, and so he begins to to think about that, and he tells the police that he does know more about what happened. Um, but that he wants to talk to his warrant officer. And the warrant officer came in, and Dusty told him everything that happened. Um, and the warrant officer said, I'm going to go call the JAG office um, and, and see what, you know, what advice to give him. And so we don't know um, if there was ever a call actually made to the JAG office. There was never informa- any information provided about that. I don't think that there's any lawyer who would recommend to anyone to speak to the police without uh, legal assistance. Um, but the, at the same time, the JAG office probably wouldn't have been able to represent him because it was an incident that happened, you know, um, not on a military base and not in military capacity. So um, when the warrant officer came back in, he told Dusty that he needed to tell police everything that happened. From that point, from eight days after the crime occurred, Dustin's story has never changed. Um, he told police that, um, you know, kind of what I told you, uh, you know, he, he and Jennifer were hanging out. Um, they found Billy Brown a ride home. He found Billy Brown a ride home. And then at some point in time, Billy Brown got frustrated that his ride wasn't able to leave immediately. And he came out to the car to see if Dusty was still there. And then that's when this, this tragedy occurred. And what happened at trial? How was it that um, Dusty was convicted? Well, I'm sure like a lot of the cases that you've covered so far, I mean, there's not really any physical evidence. It's basically just a narrative that the prosecutor crafted from these four versions of Billy Brown's stories. And they really set it up in a way that was very difficult for Dusty to attack um, to prove his innocence because Billy Brown didn't testify at Dusty's trial, and Dusty didn't testify at Billy Brown's trial. They were tried separately, um, and so it really was just kind of this this story about what prosecutors had happened. And you know, Dusty um, never claimed to be um, innocent. He, he is guilty of being an accessory after the fact. He never denied that. He never minimized his involvement in that capacity but he absolutely didn't abduct or murder anyone. In fact, there was absolutely no abduction whatsoever. They created an abduction to charge Dusty with felony murder. Otherwise, they wouldn't have been able to even charge him with that. And, sorry, what state is this? Virginia. Virginia. Um, And anything else at trial uh, that might be interesting to point out at this point? Um... 
Not really that I can think of. I mean, even unfortunately, uh, Jennifer's remains uh, were decomposed and they couldn't, they couldn't tell, you know, even how she died. So there really was no, there's no evidence that they used um, at all that pointed to his guilt. Um, they really just played up the fact that, you know, uh, he was there and that he should have known from, you know, Billy Brown's drunkenness. And, and I think a lot of people rationalized, uh, you know, he drove away. And so they felt like, you know, he was more culpable than, than what um, accessory after the fact was at the time. In Virginia, 1995, being an accessory after the fact was actually a misdemeanor. And it was punishable by up to one year in jail. And by the time of Dusty's trial, he had already served more than a year. And so um, even the, the uh, foreman of the jury years later wrote that the majority of the jury didn't believe Dusty had anything to do with the murder, but they didn't want him to walk out of the courtroom that day. So that's why they found him guilty, and he got more time. Wow, that's, uh, that's an interesting admission. Yes. Um, Alan Reed wrote that letter in 2005. In 2005. Um, and yes. so what has happened post-conviction? So Dusty has run through all of his appeals to date. Um, like I said earlier, uh, so he was, his last appeal was a writ of actual innocence, which is the last of the post-conviction relief here in Virginia. At the time, the writ of actual innocence was relatively new. And there was part of the statute that said that if the court could determine an alternate theory that a jury could convict him by, then they could use that theory to keep Dusty or anyone in prison. And if you think about it, we could say anything happened. Didn't have to be backed up by proof or evidence or anything. Just we could say this thing happened. Um, since then, they've actually changed the wording of that statute and it says a jury would find him guilty um, unfortunately they didn't make a leeway in the in the law to give those guys that were denied the writ of actual innocence under the first wording uh, leeway to re reapply for it so if dusty were to be convicted or i'm sorry if dusty were to be able to refile for a writ of actual innocence today they wouldn't be able to use the same logic to keep him in prison. But they didn't allow for anyone to file a second writ of actual innocence when they changed and lowered the standard of the law. I see. So how did you get involved in this case? Um, in 2016, I watched a documentary called Navy Seal Murderer uh, Framed target of opportunity. And I followed wrongful conviction cases for probably 15 years or so. And when I watched this film, I was shocked that I'd never heard of this case. At that time, Dusty had been in prison for more than 21 years. And um, it's just something really stuck with me. I had a, I have a brother that was a colonel in the Air Force. I grew up in the Midwest and Dusty grew up in the Midwest. And there were just some things that really bothered me about this case. Um, and so after doing some additional research um, and, and seeing that the film, you know, it, it's, it is what it's portrayed as, that um, I would write to Dusty and see if there was some way that I could help 
the documentary is very good. And I thought that we could promote the film to gain him more support. Um, when I reached out to Dusty, he basically told me if I had ideas that I thought could help him, that I should go for it. And so I did. Um, and once I got involved and I began promoting the documentary and kind of learning more about clemency um, and, and those things, I quickly realized there were other things that I could do that would probably help him more than just promoting the film. And so Dusty and I talked about those things, and then, and then I started trying to, to help in that way as well. So, so why are you pursuing the clemency aspect here? Because clemency is the only avenue Dusty has at this time to be free. Unless he finds new evidence, which we haven't found, um, there's no other mechanism for him to go free. So clemency is it. And, and what are the cases that you're making uh, to the governor uh, in pursuit of clemency? Well, primarily that if Dusty were to, have, were to be able to file the writ of actual innocence today, that they wouldn't use the same, they wouldn't be able to keep him in prison using the same argument. Lowering the standard from could to would vastly changed the intent of the law. And it lowered the standard that these people had to reach to find relief in Virginia's system. And if he were able to do that today, he would be a free man. And so that's the play that we're making. That's the argument we're making with the governor um, is just to simply review the facts and try to be unbiased about it. And you'll see that, number one, he didn't commit these crimes that he was convicted of. And number two, he deserves to be free. Dusty's done a lot of really incredible things in the last 24 years. And I believe he deserves to have a second chance at life. I, I'm kind of curious. I wanna, um, I'm going to return to the clemency thing in a minute. But um, why is it that he's not able to file uh, for the uh, factual innocence under the um, under the current statute because they only allow one bite at the apple even though the law has changed correct and has that been litigated um not that i know of i just know at this time that you can only file for that one time and dusty filed his writ of actual innocence in 2007 and he was ultimately denied uh, his writ of actual innocence in 2011. And and what was the claim based on? Well, a, a judge um, on a, there was a three judge panel. Two of the judges agreed that Dusty uh, his conviction should be vacated. The third judge did not, and in her opinion, she wrote that she believed, or it was possible that. Dusty abducted Jennifer by deception. So although everyone agrees now that Jennifer was never taken by force or anything like that, was not kidnapped or abducted in a traditional sense, that they thought that it was possible that Dusty had abducted her by lying to her or deceiving her in some way. And so using that argument, they were able to say that he did in fact abduct her, therefore the conviction for felony murder stands. 
So let me just pretend like I, I, I don't have the understanding of these cases and the law uh, that I do, even though I'm not an attorney. Um, but I've looked at, you know, dozens of cases over the years. And I think the average person listening to this is going to come to the conclusion that this is almost kangaroo court, uh, that you have a, a case where everybody seems to agree that this guy doesn't belong there, but nobody can do anything about it. Well, I, w- I wouldn't disagree with their thought process. Um. Um, I think, I, you know, if you look at other cases filed that, that filed for the writ of actual innocence around that time, there was kind of a lot of this going on unfortunately. And a lot of people, I mean, the standard of, you know, saying a jury could convict you. I mean, I, I heard from, from one juror that the reason they convicted Dusty was because a vein popped out in his neck while he was testifying. And to them, that meant he was lying and he was guilty. I mean, you know, you, you could come up with almost anything to sit there and say, you know, any kind of thought process, but that's what they were using at the time. That's the way they wrote the statute of the writ of actual innocence. And, you know, I don't know that I believe it's an accident that they didn't work in there, that people could refile under the new standard. You know, um, justice in Virginia is hard to come by. Yeah, but it does seem like there might be other avenues. And, you know, I'm, I'm not trying to litigate this uh, on a podcast, but, you know, it, it seems like... There, there are two other options beside uh, the clemency route, and the clemency route, you're probably... Uh, well, one is to get the legislature to rewrite the statute so that it uh, applies retroactively. Um, and then the other would be to challenge uh, the constitutionality of the original statute uh, in, in court and see if they can throw out the original statute to allow him to apply under the new one. Well, I'm in a state that doesn't currently have parole. So if I'm going to wait for the for the, the legislature to give release by changing a statute, I'm probably going to be waiting a real long time. Like I, I said, it sounds like uh, kangaroo court. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I hear your point. Um, so, um, so what do you view the chances of the governor... Um, you know, finding a way to issue clemency in this kind of case? I think Dusty's case is extremely clear cut. I think that Governor Northam is a very reasonable man. I believe if anyone looks at the facts of this case, it's crystal clear what needs to happen here. And I have great hope that he will do the right thing. We are farther along in the process than Dusty has ever been before. And we will keep fighting until the very last day that Governor Northam is in office. And and what is Billy saying at this point? Billy is saying exactly the same thing that he did when he testified in an evidentiary hearing in 2008, taking full responsibility for the murder of Jennifer Evans. He accepts full responsibility. He explains why he lied about Dusty at the time. He lays it all out there, and he's very clear. If you've seen the documentary about Dusty's case, then you've seen directly from Billy what he says. 
And he says all of those same things today. And is Billy still incarcerated and uh, is he serving a life sentence in this too? Uh, actually, Billy Brown was sentenced to 72 years in prison and Dusty was sentenced to 82 years in prison. Wow. So, uh, so Dusty actually got, uh, got a worse deal out of this than Billy. Yeah. In Virginia, jurors actually recommend the amount of time that a person is sentenced to, and then a judge uh, confirms that sentence. And, and Dusty ended up with a decade more time than Billy Brown did. So even with the changes to the Virginia legislature, you think that uh, criminal justice reform is just going to take a long time? I think, well, first of all, I mean, I should say that we just had elections here in Virginia. And um, for the first time in more than 20 years, the Democrats uh, now have the majority in the House and the Senate. And we also have a Democratic governor. So I think we have a much better shot at passing passing some criminal justice reform laws than we have in the last, you know, decade or more. Um, so I'm very hopeful at what they're going to do. But unfortunately, we have a lot of problems here. Um, there, there's a, a law here that actually applies uh, with Dusty's case, a problem here in Virginia, we call it fishback. And basically what this means is that when parole was abolished in Virginia in 1995, jurors were not told that parole was abolished. Even if the jury asked what the status of parole were, they were not told uh, that it was not applicable anymore. So jurors were recommending sentences like 72 and 82 years, not necessarily realizing that they were going to have to serve that entire amount of time before walking out of prison. Unfortunately, Dusty falls into that group of offenders that was sentenced during that time. So Fishback is actually one of the one of the areas um, that I think is probably the most realistic for them to pass during this General Assembly session. Um, also, there's a there's a huge push to bring back parole here in Virginia. And so there's that thing as well. Now, either of those two things could ultimately help Dusty's situation. If he were to get some new sentencing consideration, if he were to become parole eligible, it would be freedom. You know, it could mean freedom for him. It wouldn't be justice, but it would be free. Um, but I think those two things are probably more realistic than some some change in, in the way the rate of actual innocence is applied uh, right now would be my professional opinion. But anything's possible. You know how politics is. Right. And and Dusty's still relatively young. He's probably in his early 40s. Dusty's 44 years old now. 44. He spent so more than half of his life in prison. Wow. Um, and, and what is... What's his outlook look like right now? I mean, is he in a good place uh, mentally, or is he getting discouraged? Uh, Dusty is one of the most optimistic and productive people I think I've ever met. Um, he works on several different programs uh, within the prison. He works on a restorative justice program that he and a friend have developed together. Um, he implemented a dog program, a dog training program here at the prison. Um, he's done a lot of really positive things. And for him, staying busy really helps 
uh, you know, keep keep your mind from from getting too down. So I think uh, I worked on a couple different wrongful conviction cases, and, and Dusty's one that mentally I don't worry about so much. I mean, it's got to be hard, but he maintains um, pretty much staying even keel most of the time. And one question I forgot to ask was, um, did he have appropriate representation during his trial, or or would you fault uh, the representation he got? Well, Dusty had two paid attorneys at trial. I don't know that I would say that appropriate. I was shocked when I read the trial transcript because it didn't really seem like they put up much of a fight for anything. Um, they didn't prep him to take the stand. Uh, they didn't call character witnesses. They didn't even call witnesses that would have been helpful about about uh, forensic testing and things that didn't happen in this case. Um, so I don't know that I would say it was appropriate or, or good representation, but he had paid representation at trial. And was there things that they could have done forensically that would have made a difference? Well, so so after the crime occurred, when Dusty told them their, his story about what occurred, um, what happened to Jennifer that night, he turned over his car without a warrant and, and, every, and gave them everything else that they wanted without a warrant. And they did 48 man hours worth of work pulling evidence from the car because that was the crime scene. That's where she died. And none of that forensic testing was admitted into court at all. Now, I believe that's because it didn't support the story that they were trying to tell at trial. Um, but, but none of it was, was implemented at all. They could have called, um, there was a uh, forensic analyst from the lab here in Virginia that I believe he was subpoenaed, but he was never actually called to testify that could have uh, explained who stopped the testing. And I think even that would have been helpful to Dusty. Unfortunately, it, you know, they never called him to the stand. So, and they had evidence, they just didn't use it. And is that evidence still in existence or is it long gone now? Um, I think all of the evidence, I, I don't know that uh, we've, we've been told that it's gone. I, I think it most certainly is. The, also the, the car seats, the front car seats of Dusty's car, the front passenger seat is where Jennifer Evans was sitting when she was attacked. And um, when you, you die, she, you know, she urinated in the seat. And Dusty had made some comment of them to test the seat or test the car. And that was one thing that his lawyers never did and the Commonwealth never did at the time of his trial. So one of the things that uh, Dusty's family and lawyers wanted testing after he got convicted, because it would have shown that his story, what he told was true, was supported by evidence. Um, when they went to try to get those seats, those seats had mysteriously disappeared. And the person ultimately blamed for the seats being destroyed was a woman that had passed away. Wow. So it's all sort of curious, huh? Yeah. So... Um... What's the timeline look like for the clemency? Well, Governor Northam has two years uh, more in um, during his term. So realistically, we're looking at another two years. Um, but we've got a lot of really positive things that we're working on right now. And like I said before, we're further along in the process than we've been. So I think we're all very hopeful. And we just keep working hard at it every day.
if the folks listening want to help, how can they help? So if you would like to get involved, I would recommend going to the freedustyturner.org website and the Ways to Help page can give you some ideas. We also are active on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter at Free Dusty Turner. Um, and right now we're doing a postcard campaign. So we're asking people to send in a postcard with a short message of your support for Dusty. And we're hoping to use those postcards to illustrate the, the support that he has throughout the country with the General Assembly and ultimately with the governor here. So that would be a really great way to help. Great. Well, thank you, Lisa, for being on our show. You're welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Well, the case of Dusty Turner is very interesting. And I think, you know, during the course of our conversation between myself and Lisa, what we uncover is not only is this a miscarriage of justice, but we can see how problems in the criminal justice system in Virginia have helped to contribute and prolong this. Um, and, you know, it seems like there's a golden opportunity now that the political tide has shifted. Democrats have taken over in the House and the Senate in uh, Virginia, and they control the legislature and the governor's mansion to get some criminal justice reform. And it seems like Virginia is a state that uh, we should be looking more at for criminal justice reform issues. So this has been Everyday in Justice. I'm David Greenwald. Thank you for listening. We'll be back soon with another episode. Thank you to George Powell and Norman Mouse Quake Barrett for the use of our opening Everyday Injustice. You can see more of George's music at www.justiceforgeorgepowell.com. That's justiceforgeorgepowell, all one word, dot com.